Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're joined by Wesley King, who's come to be known as the biohacking investment banker. In this interview, we dive into three areas that are hugely interesting for me. Financing companies, marketing to investors, and biohacking for a better life. Wesley's brought together these three into a banking career, and now the launch of his own firm, Coherent Capital. He and his partner have a great track record, but what I like most is that Wesley's focus and his commitment is on a sector that he's both active and passionate about. And it's also perhaps the kind of sector that has an infinite lifespan in helping humans optimize and live stronger, healthier, and more productive lives. So to combine biohacking and finance with the commonality there of the measurements and the tools of marketing to engage investors to finance these deals, I thought was a natural fit for our podcast. In our discussion, Wesley shares the tools and tricks he's using to engage his book of investors, as well as find new ones. He also talks us through the tools he's using for his investor outreach, actually getting into the tactics of how he does it. And then we get into what he's doing from a biohacking standpoint. I was really curious about what can we do to just start to get that ball rolling, to start to build off a foundation of ultimately measuring our life to optimize for better performance. This is something he's been doing for years and he gives us some great insight, something we can all work on. I'm very happy to have had the opportunity to connect with Wesley and I'm sure you'll enjoy the show. On the line, I have Wesley King. Wesley, thanks so much for making the time. You bet. Glad to be here. I think this is going to be interesting because through some common connections, we were able to come together. And what triggered my interest to learn more about you was a title that you have, you've adopted. I don't know how it came to be, but it's the biohacking investment banker. And one is a world that I've played in. Another one is a world that I'm (laughs) very interested in. And I think that the commonality between us as well is that of marketing and marketing technology and finance. So uh, yeah, I'm excited for a conversation, but I think the best way to do this is to hand it over to yourself to get a bit of an intro and we could set the stage for our discussion. That sounds great. I kind of came up with the term biohacking investment banker to mean multiple things. One, it's because I do a lot of biohacking on myself. And what that really means is measuring my physiological signals, testing different things from nutrition to devices to approaches to sleep, testing all those things against my own signals and then seeing what works for me at an individual level. And then on the banking side, I wanted to support companies that were in the biohacking sphere and other disruptive tech as well. So for me, it's two meanings. I do it to myself and I want to support companies that are looking to offer services and devices, supplements and different things 
to the rest of the world so that we can all be healthier. So I wouldn't call it an obsession, but it is where I spend a lot of my time is in trying to test on myself so that I can help other people. That's awesome. And where in our previous conversation to expand on some of the banking work you've done and the finance work you've done, can you tell us a bit about that? And then maybe we can even start talking a bit about some of the marketing things you were doing. You bet. You bet. I guess I'll go backwards in time, starting from now. So right now, I'm working on raising typically seed Series A and some Series B rounds for health and wellness-focused companies, typically with some technical aspect and also other disruptive technologies. That came from me working at multiple investment banks on deals that were in disruptive tech. And then anytime a health or wellness deal came along, I was just hyper-interested wanted to help out whoever the lead banker was, or I even led some myself, learned a lot on what it really took to coach a founding team into finding the right market fit and then finding the right financing strategic investors for them to be able to really grow as fast as they wanted to. And then going back one step from that, I got pulled into investment banking actually through technical marketing in building out a database for a crowdfunding and crowd financing platform to be able to highlight deals as they came along to find new investors from cold traffic or from even advertising, all in preparation for building a really extensible database that could be segmented down to the different types of investors that are interested in different types of deals. So for me, it's been kind of a slow ramp up from technical marketing into banking, but it's always something I've been interested in is essentially helping early stage companies grow. Mm-hmm. There's something interesting for me here and it's the technical marketing aspect and you being in California, how you've been able to use that to, as you say, segment out investor groups uh, and use digital marketing effectively to tap into their pocketbooks. And so my belief is that, you know, in the future here, that marketing is going to play a greater and greater role in raising capital for companies. No longer can you just walk into a boardroom, give a pitch, and the bankers are going to sign you up, and then you go on your roadshow. Uh, I think think it's incredibly important that digital marketing starts to play a role in, in both helping raise capital and then for public companies maintain the story in the market and, and capture the interest of new investors. So, can we dive into that? What is technical marketing? And even one of the things that you have is you speak about a technical marketing stack. And how did you apply that? And how are you applying that to the work you're doing? Yeah, to me, marketing has always been about matching somebody with a service or um, an investment that they probably wouldn't have found out about otherwise. I've never approached it as trying to sell something to someone that doesn't want it. It's kind of like when I see an advertisement And I'm like, that is the perfect thing. I'm so glad I saw that. I don't care that it's an ad. I'm going to click on it now and I'm probably going to buy it today. That's kind of what I'm looking for is finding out who this person is, what kind of stuff they're interested in. If if it isn't health and wellness, like what verticals, if it's outside of, if they're traditional real estate investors, how can I find that, that information? And sometimes it's through looking on the internet, different places. Sometimes it's through physical networking at different events. But for me, it's always about capturing the data and making sure I understand that person on the digital layer. It's not about trying to sell somebody that they don't want. So the way that marketing kind of works on the back end and why I call it technical marketing is it's really the rails and the databases that capture information about people. That can go everywhere from 
your email database and knowing exactly which segments people invest in, either through searching through Crunchbase, asking them directly, pulling them in from a very specific type of ad or landing page. Every time they give me a digital bit of information, I'm storing that so that it's the next time I reach out, it's even more relevant and more in line with what they're looking for. So to me, technical marketing is about all these little connections between digital touch points on the web. I use a lot of Crunchbase, a lot of LinkedIn, Sales Navigator, and then a lot of looking through different websites as well, VC websites, for what they put out that they're interested in. The whole goal being, I'm not going to reach out to somebody who's just not investing in this space. The whole goal being, I think you should know about this, and I want to take a minute of your time to tell you about it. So, yeah, what are some of the tools you're using? We've done some really cool work with Active Campaign as our digital marketing mm-hmm. or email marketing tool, and that even can fold into a CRM. And then you yep. can go further, and I hope we're not going to lose our listeners here, but I think it's important to talk yeah. about where this stuff can go into getting into technical things like UTM parameters and mm-hmm. uh, calculating and watching the engagement with different assets that are getting put out there from a marketing standpoint. And then also recognizing that it's not just about one piece that you send out there, but multiple pieces pieces and finding and watching the engagement over time. I mean, that's what we use Active Campaign for. Yeah. What are the, some of the tools you use and, and are there hacks or are there, yeah, what are the interesting things you found to get the best out of it? Yeah, I'd say it depends on what part of the market I'm working in. When I was working on Reg A plus crowd financing raises, that's a lot more email marketing. That's probably already having a list or building a list and then putting together more newsletter types. And when I think of a newsletter, It's something that has probably gone through multiple people. You actually have a copywriter look at it. You make sure that the language is compliant. And it also has an unsubscribe button at the bottom along with address of the business. That's what I think of as a newsletter. That was what I was working on several years ago, nonstop, managing databases of 50,000 to 100,000 investors. Now, in my current job, which is more private investments and private placements, like in Series C to Series B, I don't do as much of that because I'm doing more building. I'm building relationships and I'm building a digital layer on different firms and different investors. And so I don't use email marketing with a newsletter. There's no unsubscribe button. I use more personalized messaging that is templated. And the way that I do that is through different platforms. There's one called Apollo.io, which helps me build a cold outreach email. And let's say I find an investor on LinkedIn. I will look and see if I can find their email address on their page. If I do, then I'll send them. Which I just want to step into. I mean, there's so many cool tools. (laughs) This, I'm going to start nerding out here. I mean, there's, Uh for example, hunter.io, I think it's called. Yes, very similar. You want somebody's email address and you're able to just look at the domain name and it will pull out the verified emails for you as a simple Chrome plugin. So, So something like that you'd perhaps use with Apollo. Exactly. So let's, let's label those email scraping tools. And a lot of the good ones will make sure that it's actually deliverable and they'll let you know if they don't know, meaning they'll give you 100% confidence if this domain that this investor is at is working. If someone has delivered to the address before, they'll give you 100% confidence. If they're just guessing based on somebody else's email, that'd be 70% confidence. And if they don't know, then they won't provide you the email. The whole goal being to spend your time making sure that one, you're reaching out in a relevant way. And two, that your emails are actually getting through. So my whole focus now is actually on deliverability. 
It's not on newsletters and kind of click-throughs. For the first phase of this, you're actually building your CRM and your kind of database management tool. And so verify that email is real. Reach out with a deal that's relevant. And here's some other tips. Don't put any links into the first email or attachments because that is actually going to increase your deliverability significantly. As soon as somebody actually opens it, takes a look and either responds or just opens it, then I can follow up with a tracked email, one that's tracking clicks, one with a link, maybe even an attachment, because it's already proven to be safe to that inbox. Mm -hmm. So that way, first step, I'm getting delivered. Second step, I'm actually getting them to look at content. At that point, now I've kind of ported them into a more traditional tracking tool where I can see if they're going to a website, if they're opening a YouTube video or if they're opening the doc send deck, mm -hmm. uh, everything from that point on is tracked through a link, which is great. But for the very first step, I really recommend not doing any links or attachments because that'll actually improve your ability to get a conversation moving. There's no doubt you've seen success in this. And I mean, you shared yeah. some of those experiences with the firms you were with that in the past, but I mean, you got to imagine that the venture capital firms, the private equity firms, you know, anybody with money gets inundated with emails of, hey, look at my deal. How have you found success? I mean, especially in that first email, which you make such a great point about, about not putting any links or attachments in there. So you actually increase the probability of you reaching their inbox and not be mm -hmm. caught by spam. Yep. But bar, you know, going beyond that, what's that email like for you? Is it a long form email or is it a short form email? What's the content you put in there that you find converts and actually gets some form of response? So I'd typically go with, I've looked into your background and interests, and I think this is a deal that it would be worth you looking at. And then I give like a one sentence summary of the company. And then I give maybe three bullet points of really interesting things that they have going on, whether they've proven out an aspect of their business model or they've recently had this big piece of news. So a little bit on the investor. I've looked into your background. I really think you'd like this. A little bit on the company. A few interesting bullet points about maybe the deal or the company itself. And then just more of a question. Is this something you'd be interested in looking to further? Do you want me to send over more details? Do you want to set up a call? One of those type of questions. And in that sense, I think it's probably two sentences, three bullet points, one other question sentence, and then that's it. No mm -hmm. links. Just my name. No links to my LinkedIn. Just me. And also communicating to them if I can. I'm also interested in this space. I spent a lot of time looking at this space, um, trying to get us on the same page, really, so that it's not, it's not just me reaching out on any given deal that I'm selling. It's more like I'm working with one or two companies at a time that I think are really special, and here's why. Right. Here's something that I want to dig into is like yeah. in the structure of that email, and it's, it's methodical, it's strategic in the sense of coming forward with something that is it's applicable to them. So it's semi-customized. So they look and they go, I'm not just yes. getting spammed. Right. Followed yeah. by a brief sentence about, you know, perhaps here's the problem we're solving. And then those three bullets of, I think, what, how would you say, just dropping in some good metrics of sorts or something that is a hook for them to say, ah, maybe I'm interested. And then a call to action. 
Um, yeah. And then as well, I think what you just said is almost putting yourself in the, in the same playing field as them. So they realize that, Hey, you know, maybe this guy's got some credibility. He knows a bit about our space and what we're focused on. I just, I guess what I want to say from that for the listeners is you got to take a bit of time to put some strategy into those emails because they can yeah. convert and lead to good relationships. But following that methodology you've just explained, I think is probably really powerful. And I think what, if you had to boil it down to one thing, I'm putting a lot of time into thinking about the type of investor that would be interested in this deal. And so I'm not reaching out to ones that wouldn't be a good fit. So it makes more sense for me to put time into how I would do the outreach to structure it in a templated form. But then when I do find that investor, I still put a few minutes into understanding who they are, what they've looked at before, what they've invested in before, if possible, so that I'm not doing this at a very high volume. I'm doing it at a very high quality but still doing it at scale. That's kind of been my whole approach to doing investment banking from the beginning mm-hmm. is how can I reach the right amount of people or as many as possible that need to know about this, but not start getting into the point where I'm reaching out to people who aren't a good fit. Mm-hmm. Now what's in reaching out and especially in that first yeah. email, there's a few things that I have in mind. For example, we did an interview with a gentleman named Kyle Dunn and he referenced how he's able to get in and start relationships with very large institutional investors. And one of the things he argues is that in the immediate and in the initial stages of that relationship and to get a time with them, you're not competing for credibility right off the bat. You're competing for time because yeah. there's so many other people trying to get into that inbox, into that boardroom, into a meeting with them that you're competing for not the credibility, but looking for the time. So I thought that was a great point. Is there anything that you have that you found that kind of is something stand out like that? I think that that's actually very true. I realize how many emails, like you pointed out, that these different investors are getting. So I keep it as short as possible. I'm not going to set an automated reply. I'm going to take a look later, maybe a few days later, whether they open or not, and then decide is the fact that they haven't responded a signal to leave them alone? Or is this really a good fit for them? And can I send them over some more materials and links? So I've always viewed this whole thing as a relationship that's building, even if we haven't had the chance to really connect yet. What I mean by that is every time they do something for either opening an email or clicking something or, or actually replying to me, they're giving me more signal that they're willing to build a conversation. So as soon as an investor opens two different one of my emails, or as soon as they reply to me, I will put another 15 minutes into looking through what their company does, what they do with their whole background. Meaning it's a two-way flow. If they give me data, if they give me interest, I'm going to put even more interest into them. So I view even the relationships that I'm building as a funnel. And I, the, the deeper and deeper that I'll get is based on how much time they're going to put into treating me as, an, as a human and treating the deals I'm putting out as something that's at least worth looking at. Hmm. And if they're opening multiple emails and if they're clicking multiple things, then I'm definitely going to be putting more time into getting to know who they are. And even if it's, we're not going to work together on this deal, I will make sure to see if I can get time on their calendar to understand what they're looking at in the future. Very cool. I like the approach. And you know, it's something that you've said a couple of times is how you can see people if they viewed the emails. Yeah. Uh, what tool to use for that? And maybe I think I cut you off, but are there any other tools you're using to help with engaging investors? Yeah, the most of the typical email tools that will plug into a Gmail inbox or an Outlook will have an ability to track opens. 
So the one I use again for the first outreach email is apollo.io. And that helps me track opens. As soon as they've transitioned into opening, I'll start reaching out through HubSpot where I'm tracking clicks as well. And in that way, I'm really getting a good picture of what they're doing with the content. You can get really deep as far as putting HubSpot, Pixel, or any other platform you're using. You can put their cookie or Pixel into your website as well so that you can actually see where they're going through if you have a website or a platform. I don't have one of those, but I found in past jobs that that's really powerful too. So you're not just saying, oh, they opened a docs and LinkedIn, check out the pitch. They're actually looking through our website and maybe they went through this deep into the investor uh, signup flow or something like that if you're talking more uh, digital platform for investing. So to me, again, those all paint a comprehensive picture of who, what this person is and what they're doing with your content. And you can start actually building predictive scores as to whether they're interested in a deal based on that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the stuff that a number of, I mean, B2B and B2C companies are now using to, right. to optimize their marketing and ultimately make more sales. And in the case, perhaps this isn't, we're not selling shares, but we're definitely introducing people into the investment opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, again, want to make sure that I'm not bothering anybody, but that I'm giving everyone a chance to take a look at what these companies are working on. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. And I I had to nerd out there a bit because like, it's an interesting world. And I think we're seeing two otherwise very different business worlds come together and marketing taking more of a path. I really think it's got some longevity. So that's why, yeah, it's, it's great to hear your input. Yeah, I do think it has some longevity. And I think it's important to realize this is not about advertising. It's not really even about selling. It's about essentially matching predictive matching with someone's interests with the types of supply of product or companies that are out there in the world. Nice. That's really well suited for a technical application. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Can we dive into the world of biohacking and how this is playing into your newest company? I mean, effectively, you're just launching now and that's conscious capital. So biohacking is wellness, it's wearables, it's about longevity, supplements. I mean, there's so many things there. Can you walk us through the industry? And I'm sure there's multiple industries underneath this umbrella. And then what you're doing with conscious capital for it. Sure. So this is an approach that is conscious capitalism for sure. The name of the company is Coherent Capital. Oh, Jesus, man. Why did I go (laughs) Coherent Capital? The reason we came up with Coherent is it's actually the light form wave that a laser puts off and it's it's so tight and coherent that you get this really high intensity beam that goes for a a very long time but we just thought that that was very interesting and kind of the wave matching and what we're always looking for too is the story of the company that we're taking out there to the world is it resonating with investors so to me resonance and coherence they all kind of mean the same thing it's are you starting to get a feedback loop where people are interested in in what you're doing so i want to be that coherent with the companies that i work with i want to be that in depth into the biohacking world. And I'm so entrenched into the vertical that they're looking at that I actually can tell, are they onto something? Do they need a few slight tweaks to their business model? Are they ready to really go as fast as they think they want to go? So my whole approach has always been to be the person that they think of when they want to raise money, because why would they work with a different banker who doesn't really understand what they're working on and how impactful it could be to the world? who's not just looking at bullet points, but really is looking at the technology and how it stands out from competitors. 
because hmm. I've tried all of it. And in the world of biohacking and what I focus on mostly through the fundraising side is more kind of devices and services because those are easy to compare and to like start to measure effectiveness for. Supplements, while sometimes really high margin, they might not have the defensibility or they might just be kind of white labeling off of someone else manufacturing. So it's a little hard to raise money for those companies. I would suggest for those type of e-commerce companies, though, there's really e-ventures. I would look into e-ventures as a venture capital firm that has hosted some webinars that have just blown my mind around what they look at when evaluating companies on their marketing return. What they do is they break down each cohort into a monthly acquisition target, meaning you ran a campaign in May, you ran a campaign in June, you ran a campaign in July. Each month is its own cohort, and they look at what happens to that cohort over the next 18 months. And then they look at where you start to break even, what your return on marketing is. And they take not only your marketing spend into account, but they take the marketing staff that you have on hand to service that cohort. With all of that, they've come up with some really interesting metrics on comparing one e-commerce company to another. And it's just, it's completely fascinating. And they're investing based on marketing metrics, which is really exciting. Hmm. Um, So there's that world with recurring revenue and cohort spending and all that. And then there's biometric tracking, which is essentially what's happening in your physiology or what's happening at a population level. I think we're seeing a lot of this around COVID too. What is important to track? Is it respiratory rate? Is it skin temperature? Is it blood oxygen? Is it heart variability, which is a measure of stress and recovery? All of these things are important in emerging biometrics. But what does it mean at an individual level? And then what does it mean at a population level? So I'm looking for companies that are looking to take advantage of true and personalized health improvements based on these biometrics. There's no longer having to guess as to whether something works for you. You can test it against your own biometrics, your own sleep scores, your own energy levels, and different ways to measure those things. So I find the tracking side very fascinating because we have the ability to track a lot right now. And then you start to look at what I call the modality side. So you have the things that you're tracking. Now, what are the things you can test against those metrics to see what actually works for you? So there's really interesting stuff there as well. All the way from what kind of diet are you going to adopt for yourself to is there a device you can put on your wrist that can actually make you feel calm that might make somebody else feel a little bit too wired. We're all wired a little bit differently. So I've been testing a lot of these things and I'm happy to dive into a lot of different stuff I've tested. But that at a very high level is what are you tracking and then what are you changing? I'm looking for companies that are validated to be changing biometrics and they can actually do that now without having to go through a ton of expensive clinical trials. That might be where they're headed, but they can test on a cohort of a thousand people or 2000 biohackers that can give them really great feedback as to what's working and what's not. Wow. There's lots to unpack here. And and I'm going to take a step back again and apologize. Coherent capital. And you know what I liked about when you explain the name there, uh, yeah. and the frequency and almost that continuity and mm-hmm. how that's part of your philosophy and where you want to work into. I mean, that to me is, I know some people as an example in the resource space and they live, eat and breathe gold yeah. and only gold. Okay. And yeah. they know the minds, the people in them, the, the management teams, who's doing what, and they know it so deeply yeah. that they can speak to it on a level that almost nobody else can, where I would argue, you know, there's bankers in the industry that they'll jump from cannabis to cryptocurrency and may, you know, resources now. Um, yeah. And they're just, they're out there 
getting money for their clients and taking the fees. But do they know the deals deep enough? And are they able to provide that kind of value add where they could come with an incredible acquisition opportunity that would be the catalyst for exponential growth kind of thing? Um, And arguably, no, they can't because they just jump around. Whereas what I like what you're doing is what I take is you're betting on a long, a long-term run here that we are going to move into much more personalized and technologically assisted healthcare for ourselves. Absolutely. And I think that the way that you're explaining that made me really excited because that is how I'm thinking about these relationships and wanting to get that deep, know the founding teams, know who they're hiring, know what their needs are. And that's even if I'm not working with them, I just do this all the time because I'm always thinking about who could they sell to? What are their goals as a business? What do they really want to impact over the next five or 10 years? And always kind of just paying attention to that so that I'm not trying to ever really sell anything. I'm just more looking at where the company's headed and starting to match them with the resources they need to go that direction. I even pay attention down to the emotional intelligence levels of the founders because that tells me a lot about are they going to be able to be influential? Are they going to be able to convince investors? Are they going to be able to bring the right team on to actually grow to where they want to grow? Everyone wants to be a billion dollar company. But if there's a lot of emotional intelligence blockages, I will run a lot more tests on that company, testing them with different things and relationships and introductions before I will get in deep and and work with them long-term. I think that's really interesting. And, you know, I'm going to reference back to a, another yeah. episode we just had with a gentleman named Anthony Lacavera. He talks about his part of his due diligence process being a whole lot of conversations with the founders of teams and, yeah. you know, continually asking questions and not about just being cautious with the capital, but making sure that there's a coherence in, in what the, yeah. the founding teams are saying. Mm-hmm. But now, when you're talking about emotional intelligence, what do you look for? How do you test for that? Because that's an interesting take. I think I look a lot for self-awareness and that's something that a lot of people can take a look at. Are they aware of their own behaviors and habits and how they're affecting the, the things that they say they want to do in the world? Are their habits actually leading them in that direction? And are they aware of that? That's kind of the first layer of emotional intelligence. And a lot of founders are pretty good at that. And then, then you get into other awareness and I start to pay attention to how they treat their service providers and how they treat their employees or contractors. And are they able to be resilient in tough situations? And you can actually start to pick up a few more markers from those to see if there's a directional trend. And then if they have certain hangups around areas where they've been kind of screwed over in business in the past, I want to make sure that those hangups, if they have them, are actually beneficial to the business, meaning they might provide a motivating factor that helps them move quickly. But there also could be a hangup that actually completely prevents them from being able to do what they want to do. So I'm always looking for things like what are their stated goals? And then are their habits actually in alignment with those goals? And I call that emotional intelligence as a broad picture of their self-awareness and then their other awareness. Do you actually score this? I mean, do you think that there's a a way to score this in a due diligence process? There's definitely ways to score emotional intelligence. There's really well-validated tests. I don't do any of this, but... As I make the transition into funding companies myself, I know that this will be a very, very big part of how I make decisions. Looking for the best technologies and models and strategies for sure, but adding on this layer, I think will be a home run. And then even starting to look at ways on increasing their emotional intelligence for companies that I invest in. I will definitely be putting a lot of thought into how can I do that for founders that I'm backing. Hmm. 
Interesting. Over the long term, it's a very much a stronger predictor of whether they'll be successful than IQ. Yeah. Wow. Interesting, man. What a um, different take. And, you know, somewhere I want to go now, if, if you don't mind, is talking more about biohacking. And I mean, there's a reason why, and I, and I, I can see where you're going with your business. And, and I think I can see that trajectory. In fact, when it comes to the world of wellness and biohacking and, and all of that, that is there for me, I'm fascinated by it. I think it's a really interesting subject and something that I wish I could apply to my life to ultimately reduce my stress and increase my longevity. But where do we start? And I am also asking this for our listeners, for the executives who are listening to this saying, okay, great. I'm getting some good intel on how I can finance my company, but how the hell can I live longer? Because I'm not going to be able to maintain this pace, but I have no idea where to start. It's it's been a very, very long journey for me. Um, And I always try to distill it down as much as possible. It's probably been nine years for me. I actually started out because I was losing my memory when I was about 24 and I couldn't figure out why. I just had no long-term memory anymore. And then when I moved out of my house in North Carolina, I found that I had a huge patch of black mold right under my bed, under the head of my bed. So I'd been living there for about three years and it just continually started to develop different kind of food allergies and then also started losing my memory. And that actually is what pushed me into biohacking, into learning what was going on, learning what was causing the the memory issues and learning about things that I could tweak in my environment and my lifestyle and what I put in my body that could help. And what I found over terms and as far as foundational things that you can do is start to think about how you can personalize your approach to your energy levels and your recovery. There's a lot of ways to do that, but I would just suggest within each type of wellness that's thrown at you and sold to you, what works for you and how are you going to measure what works for you? So one thing that works really well for a lot of people is just starting to track their activity level and their sleep level. I even track on my computer, my productivity level through an app called Rescue Time tracks everything I'm doing every day on every website, on every even software program I have on my computer. And so since I've had this now for our three years, I can really tell if something is going on in a given month that is impacting my productivity. On the sleep side, I've been tracking my sleep with an app called um, Sleep Cycles. And then next, I actually moved to a wearable called Biostrap that tests not only my sleep stages, but also my nocturnal recovery levels through heart rate variability, which measures stress and the ability to completely recover overnight, all the way to blood oxygen, like I mentioned, respiratory rate, and even in the future, skin temperature. A lot of these things will give you a really established baseline and then a band of what are the statistical changes for you. And if you start to inch outside of those, you know something's probably going on either for the positive or for negative. And I've just found over time, (laughs) I've just been testing so much stuff. So I have a hard cutoff for caffeine at 11 a.m. I'm a slow caffeine metabolizer, which I found out through 23andMe. And then I just tested over and over and I started inching back through the day earlier and earlier until I realized between 9 and 11 is really my sweet spot. Otherwise, it'll start to affect my sleep stages later. I have a hard cutoff for chocolate. I've started not eating certain inflammatory foods based on gut tests and then also based on energy levels. And that's really, really helped me. Let's see, as far as other established baseline things, one of the top productivity things, and this I think is very interesting, is working on exactly what you want to be working on. 
And that's sometimes very hard to do. But I found that as I can in my life prune off things that I'm really just not interested in, even like what I'm doing now with launching Coherent Capital, I loved working at the last investment bank I was at, but I didn't love every single deal that we worked on. So I thought, what is the next evolution in me? And that would be working on exactly what I want to work on, nothing outside of it. So that's essentially why I started Coherent Capital. Those types of moves are what really up-level my productivity and push me past my kind of natural ADD tendencies to always want to do something different. I find that if I have a goalpost and a vision, what I want to work on, it actually guides all of my decisions toward that. Hmm. Obviously, very hard to put up boundaries sometimes and very hard to prune off things. But as a general practice over time, that actually has increased my productivity quite a bit. I got a couple of questions for you. And, but I think first, I just want to rehash what you said there. So yeah. you've got some wearables tracking sleep and they seem like pretty low barrier things for anybody to start adopting. And then actually, that's another question I had. Mm-hmm. Are those the habits that can be adapted and adopted to get the most out of kind of like an early stage of biohacking? So can you just go back and just maybe retouch on those so we can, yeah, just like maybe two or three solid steps we could take? What I've found, I'll mention what's been the most impactful for me and then just what I've seen knowing many, many biohackers across the years and what they've said as well. Getting your circadian rhythm into balance with what's going on in your environment, which is the sun and the moon, is very important. So I get sunlight in the morning between seven and nine on as much of my skin as possible. So my face, my arms, sometimes my chest. That will signal through both your skin and through your visual or through your eye and your visual cortex, kind of the exact time that you're at in the day. Those things get thrown off. If you're not getting some natural sunlight and if you're getting a lot of blue light throughout the day, your body just doesn't actually quite know what time it is, especially as you start to push blue light late to the night. So one thing I'd recommend for everybody is get more sunlight, especially in the morning when it's not going to be damaging to your skin. Start to cut off artificial light as soon as you can toward the evening. So I kind of cut off all artificial blue light at about 8 p.m. using blue blocking glasses and also just using different bulbs in the house. That has really helped me fall asleep faster and get more deep sleep. Again, I'm just testing this all the time. Mm. And then I would, again, start to kind of pay attention to what works for you nutritionally. There's ways to do that. You can start with a gut. You can start with a blood allergy test, or you can just kind of pay attention to what foods you're naturally attracted to and what works well for you and your energy levels, sustained energy. Those are the most basic and foundational things. And you can get really deep into each of those, but I'll start there. Mm. Yeah. I think one of the things that you hit there is it's becoming more and more important and even just front and center. It's first and foremost, almost full stop is you want to change your life for the better, get better sleep. Yep. I don't think there's anything else you can argue there. So uh, with that, are you the kind of person, I mean, investment banking can be incredibly long hours and I'm having this issue too. My days easily can go into the 14 hours of sitting in front of a computer working kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or do you put hard stops on the work you do and try to fit your working hours into a certain box and then use the others for your life? How do you manage your time? I think it depends on how much I'm doing that's self-managed. If I'm running certain deals and running my own business, I'll be more flexible with the time. But I definitely have, I really won't open my computer on the weekends if I can avoid it. I won't even turn on my internet on the weekends if I can avoid it. I'll be ready and willing to respond to kind of urgent things if they come up after 7.30 p.m., but I won't do it otherwise. 
if I am on my computer, I'll make sure that flux is turned on. That's a blue light adjuster for the computer. I'll definitely make sure I have blue blocking glasses on. And I also want to make sure to avoid any kind of confrontational emails before, or I guess after about nine o'clock, which means I typically won't check my email. I mean, confrontational is maybe a pretty extreme word. What I mean is I don't want to get into a sympathetic state before I go to bed. I'm actually trying to trend towards parasympathetic and recovery. So mm-hmm. I've just found in the past that it's just not worth checking your email after 930 because I might get something that puts me into a sympathetic state and keeps me up until two o'clock or something like that. And just for clarity, I mean, the wearables that are out there now, I'm thinking like the aura ring as an example, mm-hmm. that can, it can measure that. I mean, I would imagine like almost if you at 9.15 PM open an email that triggers you, it's something that has some form of you know, it's a stressful email, stress-inducing yeah. email. Yeah. You can actually see that reflected in the measurements of the, the wearables, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm going to make the point for all of those out there who have worked their whole career not avoiding those types of things. It's not that you shouldn't be exposed to stressful things. You should actually make sure that you're resilient to stressful things. For me, it's just a risk-reward thing. It's just not worth the reward of maybe catching one email and being able to respond that night. I'd rather take the risk of missing that and make sure that I get good sleep and good recovery so that I can be more effective the next day. There's just the risk would be that that would keep me up a little bit later and throw me off a little bit the next day. And it's just not worth it for me because I live such a fairly optimized life where my energy level is really high every day. And starting to get into those little tiny negative feedback loops can start to push that down and me out of flow and out of peak performance. Well. I mean, you look at every sports, every professional athlete out there, and they've got a team of people measuring every one of their movements, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And so bringing that into our own lives, you know, I could track or tell you so many times where I've spiraled because of decided to keep on hitting emails late at night and then get a terrible sleep. (laughs) Uh, followed by a a really unproductive day the next day, which leads into another, it kind of starts to spiral on itself. And and like you say, negative feedback loops. So wearing, using the wearables for us as professionals, and it's a really interesting thing of bringing that into, into our work lives. Absolutely. And I actually, it's taken a while because not a lot of these wearables will give you really actionable insights. You kind of have to understand what they're offering and measuring. But I've gotten to the point now where if I have low biometric scores, usually around stress and recovery for two days in a row, I've just seen that pattern so many times. And if I don't take some action, I'm going to get slightly sick on that third day. That's when I'll have like a slightly sore throat or just my eyes will be tired or even maybe I do feel sick. I've just seen it happen over and over. It's really three days for me, at least three days of really low recovery that kind of bad for my system. So now I just have this whole bevy of things I can choose from now when that starts to happen, whether it's like taking a midday walk at the beach or going to grab like a more recovery style drink with vitamin C and different herbs rather than a coffee. I just won't really push my system that third day if I can avoid it. Hmm. And that's really, really helped me to just continually get back into balance and, and high resilience. Yeah. Resilience and maintain a very a solid energy. 
a high level energy. Oh, that's cool, man. Very interesting. Well, Wesley, I want to be respectful of your time here. Any final thoughts for those listening in the, the professional world or any anywhere who want to either incorporate marketing into their finance work or biohacking into their personal and professional lives? Yeah. Any final thoughts you have? I'd say probably my final thought is really just a combination of the two things we've talked about, marketing, biohacking, and then financing as well is just it's so fun to me to be able to design this way of working where it's an iterative process where I'm constantly, but not obsessively, looking for ways to improve myself and then improve my ability to be valuable to my clients. I use certain clients as a muse, even if they're not my client yet. Meaning I've picked out several in the past that I say to myself, if I were a little bit more experienced or if I had the right connections and relationships, I could really, really help that company. And I really want to. I really want to support that company. They're really solid. So even if I'm not ready at that time, I'll use them as my muse to push me forward. So what can I test on the marketing side? What can I test on the biohacking side? What more do I need to learn? What more do I need to read? So that next time that that comes along, I can take advantage of that opportunity. So for me, it's just a really fun way to work. Where even if I can identify opportunities, even if I can't take advantage of them right now, they're actually my muse for the next version of the value that I can offer. And that's actually really accelerated my learning over the last few years. Yeah, what a fascinating way to, to level yourself up there. Yep. Very cool. So that'll be my kind of my final share is just if you can find something like that or you can just start to think about the world like that, it's really helped me. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I guess perhaps if you're to look and you look at our conversation, all three of these things between yeah, our professional lives, marketing or finance, marketing, and biohacking, they all have the commonality of measurement. Yes. Everything when measured there is what starts to lead to incremental benefit and success. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, iteration. I'm all about it. Nice, man. How can listeners follow your work and where can they find you? Two things that are pretty unique as far as naming and convention, so it should be easy to find. Biohacking Banker, that's me personally. And then Coherent Capital is the firm that we've just started to help fundraising for consciously designed companies. So a lot of health and wellness, and then also just tech that's out there for the betterment of humanity. So that would be Coherent Capital. And you should be able to find those two things online. Awesome, man. I'll put the links in the show notes. And otherwise, Wes, thank you so much for for taking the time. You bet. I can't wait to learn more about you and see how I can help you as well. Right on, man. I think we're just becoming friends, but it sounds like we have a a lot of overlap in our backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. But we can talk about in the future. Well, let's do that, man. Let's do that. And yeah, again, thanks for sharing your experience here with us. And yeah, we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.